What I'm going to do to start is uh, put some scripture passages up. Um, and the episode that's being presented in all of these passages is Jesus standing before the authorities when he was uh, being tried. And just before we get right into it, the concept of kingship. Um, we're not in this society that we live in very familiar or comfortable with it. It's a tough sell to talk about kingship. In fact, living in the culture that we do is pretty tough, especially when we claim to be following a king. Um, I struggle with it because I'm a product of the society, and so are all of you. We love to talk about democracy and all of that, right? And how does following a king fit into that? Now, Canada is uh, technically a constitutional monarchy, which means that we have a sovereign, at least on paper, in the Constitution, but that's almost meaningless because the queen has almost no power or authority at all. It's kind of a rubber stamp ceremonial thing. But when we talk about Jesus, we tend to put Jesus' kingdom somewhere out there. And I appreciated what Seth shared during worship that Jake and the young adults have been doing together, talking about the actual reality of the kingdom of God in the here and now. So, without uh, going farther into that, the first passage is from Matthew. I'm just going through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and each one of them has, an, has a presentation of this episode. Some, there are some minor differences, and some give more details than others. Matthew's is simply this. Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor questioned him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus said to him, It is as you say. Matthew 26, 11. The note here is just reminding us that in that context, the way they, the, the answer was given, it meant, yes, I am. Jesus made a clear affirmation that he was a king, and a king specifically of the Jews. Same idea from Mark, just a tiny bit briefer, and the governor is actually named, Pilate questioned him, are you the king of the Jews? And he answered him, it is as you say. Luke gives us a little bit more detail, and he starts a little bit back from that when Jesus is before the Sanhedrin, the supreme council of the Jewish people at the time. When it was day, the council of elders and the people assembled both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council chamber, saying, If you are the Messiah, tell us. A little aside here, the Messiah included the concept of kingship. Being Messiah for the Jewish people included this concept of kingship because the belief was that the Messiah would be a direct lineal descendant of King David, the only uh, family that had a right to claim the kingship. And of course, by his bloodline, Jesus was a direct descendant of, J of David, and he was an eldest of, of the family, which gave him a legitimate claim to be the actual king of the Jews. He, he said to them, If I tell you, you will not believe, and if I ask you a question, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. No clearer claim he could have made. The Son of Man was not really code. It was a, an expression from the book of Daniel that meant Messiah, the anointed king sent by God. And he's saying that my power, the right hand of God, of course, is the hand of power. And he says, my power comes and my authority comes directly from God. And they all said, are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, yes, I am. 
Luke goes on a little bit farther, and now Jesus is before Pilate. Then the whole body of them, all this ruling council, not just a couple, got up and brought him before Pilate. Geographically, that was a bit of a walk uh, for those of us that uh, did the Israel thing back in March. Uh, we actually walked that ground, um, and it was probably about a 15-minute walk from Caiaphas' house to uh, where this council meeting would have been held to the Antonia Fortress, which is where Pilate would have been. And they began to accuse him, saying, we found this man misleading our nation and forbidding to pay taxes to Caesar. Of course, we know that Jesus never forbade the paying of taxes. And saying that he himself is Christ, the Messiah, a king. So Pilate asked him, saying, so here's the bigger context of that little question we got from Matthew and Mark. Are you the king of the Jews? And he answered them and said, it is as you say. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. Now that isn't, you don't have time to go into this, but uh, that is an astounding statement from Pilate at this point. I mean, he just makes a clear admission. I am the king of the Jews. In other words, I am the king who should be the king of the Jews, and the guys that are filling the role right now are imposters. He's talking about Herod and the various Herods here and that. And like Pilate, should have had all kinds of alarm bells going off here now. This guy is a rebel rouser. Uh, and, but instead, he says, I find no guilt. He turns around and says to the council, I find no guilt in this man. Fascinating. I really wonder what was going through Pilate's mind at the time. Now we go over to John. And so here again, we get a little bit more about the conversation between Pilate and Jesus. You see, there are no contradictions here. People sometimes like to make the gospel sound as if they contradict each other. Not at all. All that we're getting here is a little more detail as to actually what was transpiring here. Pilate entered again into the praetorium. The praetorium was the specific part of the fortress, the Antonia fortress, the Roman headquarters in Jerusalem, where the governor held court where he did his official business. If he had to meet people, this is where he did it. Uh, the, the Antonia does not stand anymore, but we know where it was. Uh, so, I mean, we can't go and visit this, but anyway, the, the ground is there, occupied by other things. Into the praetorium and summoned Jesus and said to him, are you the king of the Jews? And Jesus answered, are you saying this on your own initiative, or did others tell you about me? In other words, like, have you heard of me by reputation? Is that where you're coming from? And Pilate answered, I'm not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and chief priests delivered you to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. Excuse the Greek there, but just to make a little bit of a point that the literal meaning of what Jesus said was that it's not within or contained within this present age. You can't limit it to the kind of kingdom or kingship that or you're talking about. It doesn't mean that it's not there. It's just like it's not this that you're thinking of when you're talking about your Herod or your emperor. It's not of this existing order is what he's saying. If my kingdom were of this age or this existing order, the way you're used to it, like Rome and all the other empires, then my servants would be fighting because that's what people do now. Like, you know, contending monarchs and all that, that's what they do. So that I would not be handed over to the Jews, but as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Therefore, Pilate said to him, so you are a king. And Jesus answered, you say correctly that I am a king, or as you say, I am a king. The Greek term is basileus, which means a ruler with sovereign power. This is not empty phraseology that Jesus is saying about himself. This is the real deal. I am. For this I have been born, for this I have come into the world to testify to the truth. He's the king of truth. That's one thing. 
and everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. Now we don't, you know, after that, and the pilot asked his famous question as to what is truth and all that kind of stuff, but we're not going to go there. We're almost 2,000 years from those events. And, and sometimes the, you know, the 2,000 years creates a bit of a disconnect for us because there's a lot of ancient history and all that. But I want to turn that a little bit here. How long ago really is that? In the Bible, a generation is usually reckoned about 40 years. 2,000 years is 50 generations. Now, in your lifetime, you may be connected directly to four generations. If you have great-grandparents that you know, right? Uh, consider yourself... Well, if you have children, you're connected to a future... Well, it's a present but future. If you have great-grandchildren, if you have grandchildren, etc., okay? And then you go backwards. You may be connected to as many as six generations within your lifetime. They're not all alive at the same time. But within your lifetime, you can be connected to perhaps six generations. Maybe seven for a very odd person here and there. What I'm trying to say is that if you take that as 50 generations since Jesus, it's not that long ago. Really, right? What's the point? The point is that we need to feel the connectedness of this to ourselves. What Jesus was saying then is now. It's not then, just then. It's now. And it has been true, well, since before the beginning of the world, but since the revelation that Jesus gave, it's, been tr uh, it's true since then, always. Jesus was there present then. The kingdom was there with him because he is the living king. But Jesus is still the living king. It's here. It's now, like Jacob was sharing with the young people. It's not a sometime out there thing. Jesus lived on earth. Does he still live on earth? Well, okay, his body isn't here, physical body right now. But it is. Because you are his body. We are his body. We're part of it. We're a member of it. The kingdom is present now on earth in us. Now, that's a hard one to get sometimes. I don't know about you. I don't feel, you know, there are times when, and probably fairly often, that I don't feel like I'm doing a very good job of it, but it still is true. Jesus unequivocally, that is, without any doubt, there was no kind of fudgy language about it or anything. He made a very clear declaration about who he was. We've been trying to slough that off ever since. Yeah? We being the collective we. And I do it in my own life sometimes. Yeah, Jesus, you know what? Yeah. I don't really want to do that. I think you're telling me, but I don't want to, right? All kinds of stuff has been written about this. Well, what was he really saying? Did he ever really say that? Was that some kind of invention of the apostles later? You know, all that kind of stuff. But all of the uh, testimony from the, from the first generations of Christians until today is crystal clear about this. There was no fudginess about it. In one of the songs today, there was, a, you know, this reference to the king. Sometimes we just treat that as if it's, I don't know, ceremonial language or kind of uh, a theological concept or something. But it's completely true. The thing, turn the telescope from like, well, when I talked the last time, I talked about creation, the big picture creation, you know, macrocosm. Now turn the telescope around. Like we got this telescope or all kinds of powerful uh, telescopes, some of them are out in space itself, looking deep into the cosmos and all that. From God's perspective, he's turned the tele telescope around, from looking at the big thing to the small thing. We're the small thing. Right? You ever do that, you know, when you were a kid, or maybe even since? 
you take a telescope or your binoculars and you turn them around the other way and make everything look super small instead of super big. What God did was he took himself, the immense, powerful, infinite creator, and he telescoped himself down into this tiny little place, this tiny speck of existence that is planet Earth. And even smaller than that, he telescoped himself down into a single individual human being. Absolutely incredible. This is the creator of the universe we're talking about. It's not, I don't want to minimize this, because each one of us is created in God's image and is absolutely special and unique, like we were saying before. But in this case, God took himself and put himself in a single particular body and said, I'm going to hide myself. If you go and read Philippians chapter 2, the first couple of verses there, it talks about how he emptied himself and made himself as nothing. If you take that tremendous idea of God, and he's born in that, you know, we celebrated at Christmas, and it becomes this kind of ritual thing that we do at Christmas. But the reality is, there he was. God himself in this tiny little presence. We call that the incarnation because we need to give a name to it, right? And that's just a fancy word that means becoming flesh. Becoming actual flesh. This thing is so humongously big and so meaningful and so world-upsetting that we've been trying to explain it away ever since. Wouldn't it be nice if we could just ignore the idea that the king of the universe actually was a human being and actually has a right to claim his kingship and change our lives or ask us to change our lives and actually has authority to do it? It's very disturbing. How about you? If, if he gets into me and he wants, you know, if he gets something into me and he wants me to change something and I don't want to change it, that's a battle. I can say yes or no. Uh, but if you're really, you know, you're really his, he's not going to let you go on that. You get into an argument with God. Any of you ever argued with God? Yeah? Fought with him about stuff? Do you win? You can put it off for a long time, right? You can push it aside and you can try to get it out of your mind. He's not going to let it go. So, one of the ways that we try to get rid of this whole idea is that we, t- we want to change Jesus from what he claimed to be into something else. Yeah? I'm guilty of it. Sometimes it'd be nice if I could just say, yeah, you know, like he was just this really cool, good teacher that talked about peace and love, man, peace and love. Yeah. You know, being a sort of a fringe hippie back in the day, peace and love, man. That's what Jesus was all about, right? That's all you need. All you need is love, the Beatles, right? You do need the love, absolutely. But if you let that love into you, that love not some kind of human counterfeit or, you know, philosophical counterfeit or or hippie counterfeit, you know, that you get sort of get this peace and love feeling by taking some kind of substance, you know. And then after you get, it wears off, you feel horrible and you don't feel, feel very peaceful and loving at all. But in this case, when that love gets into you, the peace will also get into you. And once you get addicted to that, even if it kind of has low points, you'll never want anything else. You will never want any other king in your life. All the other stuff becomes fraud, empty substitute. So lots of philosophers have tried to change Jesus into something else and say, you know, like, he was just this really cool teacher or he was this radical social reformer that just wanted to overturn the whole system and have this revolution and change society. 
Well, Jesus gets into your life and he gets, into, he gets you involved with a group of people that are sold out to him. It will change things. It really does. But not through the usual way of this realm where you get a bunch of revolutionaries together who think they've got to go out and be violent and overthrow the system, right? Again, I'm betraying my roots here, okay? I'm going back to an old Chicago Transit Authority song, you know? A voice came out of the darkness and said, tear the system down, tear it down to the ground, okay? Anybody know that song from way back? No, okay, I'm betraying myself. What's this like to say? Okay, I thought that was a really cool song back in those days. Tim is shaking his head there. He knows the song. Okay. Um, but anyway. All right. That, too, is a counterfeit. That stuff's all counterfeit. Jesus didn't come to do that kind of tearing the system down. His kingship is to, like the song said we sang this morning, king of my heart. That's where his revolution starts. King of my heart. If he's the king of my heart, man, things are going to change. Things are going to move. I'm going to get awfully uncomfortable with some of the stuff that I've been doing, that I've not been doing, that I should be doing, stuff like that. It's going to be tough for me to change if, unless I just let him do it, let it go. And that can still be tough because a whole lot of people will tell you, I don't understand what's going on in your life, man. Like, what is this? You're going to make them uncomfortable. And they're going to have to deal with the you that's not the one they thought. This new you, this person you're becoming. Because Jesus says what he's going to do, he's going to give you a new life. He's going to make you a different person. Our destiny, you want to know what your destiny is? Besides living with God forever? is to be conformed to the image of his son. Paul says this totally clearly. That's who you're going to become. That's who you are becoming. That's why it's painful. This is a painful thing because the old person that we have been is still fighting. But the new person that we're becoming is, through this process, overcoming that old person and the old person dies hard. Dies hard. And we never get quite through it, right? Until either we die, or, which would be nice, Jesus comes during your lifetime and finishes the job like that, right? Well, someday, someday, either way, you'll be there. Okay. Now, what does this apply to our, our gospel message? What is your gospel message? If you tell somebody what the gospel is all about, what are you going to tell them? Anybody know the old formula of the four spiritual laws? Oh, wow, I am really dating myself, man. Okay, like I say, when I first went out street witnessing with a bunch of people way back in the early 70s, 73, whatever it was, okay, we had these little pamphlets called the, the Four Spiritual Laws, okay? So what it really did was reduce the gospel to four points. I mean, simple people need a simple message, right? Or at least it works better that way when you're witnessing. Spontaneously cold, you know, cold witnessing, which is, I guess, not a, not a recommended method anymore. You used to think it was cool, and even some people even got saved. But here's, here's, here's a version of the four spiritual laws. Number one, law number one, and you didn't have to explain it so much as you would these days. Everyone's a sinner. You might have to explain, yeah, a sinner is someone who's broken God's law, but basically everybody knew there was something like about God's law, like the Ten Commandments. And you could just say, here's the Ten Commandments. You know those? Okay, which ones have you not broken? Hmm? Well, of course, question number one, can we anymore recite the Ten Commandments? Yeah, I hope so. But you do know a few of them. You know, thou shalt not kill, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not bear for, or lie, thou shalt not covet anything of your neighbors, those things. There's actually 
four of them are directly associated with God, about loving. Jesus reduced it to two to make it even simpler for us, right? Number one. Yeah. So the first four of the ten are about that, loving God. The last, or the, the second group of six are about loving your neighbor. That's the second commandment Jesus gave us, right? I mean, all you have to do is even say two of them. That's all you need. Do you love God? Mm. Right? How about your neighbor? You do good with that? Okay. Mm. Right? Anyway, so you, could, you use that one. Second, well, if everyone is that, I am. Right? Everyone's a sinner? Uh-oh, that includes me. I'm a sinner. Can I stop just because I want to by willpower breaking those things? Can I make it right by willing to make it so? I might do it for a day, two, maybe even a few days. Sooner or later, though, I'm going to lose it. I'm going to explode at somebody. I'm going to say a whole bunch of unkind things and some probably maybe nasty language. I just blew it. I just broke one of the commandments because at times when you get too angry, you want to kill somebody. And Jesus said about that, if you are angry at your brother, you've basically committed murder while in your heart. If you look lustfully at another person, that doesn't mean that you can't find somebody else attractive, you know, if you're, you know, that's, that's fine. You can find people attractive, but you should start fantasizing about that and doing stuff in your mind with them. Basically, Jesus said, you've already committed adultery in your mind. That's pretty harsh. Everything goes today, right? Law number three, sin separates us from God. And if you're separated from God, you don't get to spend eternity with him. Because God can't sort of just sit around and say, that's cool, you're a sinner, and that doesn't matter. It's all fine. That's the way we approach it now, though, right? God is mercy. God is love. Anything goes, God will love you regardless. You know what? He does love you regardless, but the problem is that it's hard for him to love what you're doing. That's not just hard. Okay? He's not going to love what you're doing. He's not going to. He's not going to love if you're committing adultery or whatever, whatever else you're doing. That's not lovely. And that's a sin against the second group of six, too. You're not loving your neighbor, whoever, if you're doing those kinds of things, okay? You're dragging them into it with you. That's not love. So, last point, you need a savior, because you can't save yourself. That's a pretty cool representation of the gospel, right? And in its way, if you need a savior, of course, God sent you a savior. That's who Jesus is. But, that's, that's okay. I'm not saying there's anything inherently wrong with seeing the gospel that way. But it limits it to, it's not just that. That's just purely private, you know what I mean? That, if that's all it is, it's, it's just a private thing between you and God. Jesus never said that. He is the king of your heart, but he's the king of a whole lot, others, a whole lot else too, Right? Jesus didn't say, I just came to be the king of your heart. He said, I am the king. I am the king. There is no other. We, in the book of Revelation, see him. He's called the king of kings and the Lord of lords. All, and Paul says, every knee. The queens, the emperors, yours, mine, the beggar in the street, the poor person, the homeless person, Every knee shall bow to the king. And the book of Revelation makes it clear whether they want to or not. That's, like, this is, this is not a democratic thing here. Radically different from the way we think about this in our culture. It's all relativized now. Kingship is a relative thing. Authority is a relative thing. You're free to challenge any authority. Whatever our culture says about spirituality, you know, like I'm a spiritual person, but I'm not a religious person, that's great. 
you don't have to be a religious person. But saying I'm a spiritual person is like, duh. Yeah, you are a spiritual person. You want to know why? Whether you worship God or not, you're a spiritual person because you're a being that was born with an eternal spirit. Huh? You're a spiritual person. I don't care whether you spend any time meditating, praying, whatever. You're a spiritual person. What you're really saying is, well, you know what? I don't need God, and I don't need any relationship to God, and I don't want to hear your God language. That's what you're hearing, right? That's basically what's going on there. So be a spiritual person. Jesus is very clear in all of that. Now, why did Jesus get crucified? Did he get crucified because he was just a teacher who said some things about peace and love? No. Did he get crucified because he was, maybe, I mean, you could say this, and some people say it, because he was a rabble-rousing prophet who upset people and talked about changing the order. Yeah, there are elements, definitely elements, like part of what Jesus says is very political. I mean, if you claim to be the king and the emperor is a false one, in Rome, that's pretty political, right? Jesus didn't say he came to overthrow the emperor. And I think maybe that's where Pilate said, this guy's no threat. Because he's not threatening to overthrow the emperor. At least, not directly. Right? And I think Pilate didn't get along well with the Jewish authorities, so he just kind of bugged them. You know what? I'd love to let this guy loose again to keep you guys on your toes and keep you busy. Right? Why did Jesus get crucified? Because he said he was the king. Because he was challenging directly the order and the system that existed there. We have this concept in our society of the separation of church and state. You know what I'm talking about? The government doesn't interfere in religious things, and the churches, the religious organizations, don't interfere in government things. I'm summarizing it brutally, but that's about what it amounts to. Is that true? If our prime minister, just a very recent example, says that he's not going to allow funding for religious organizations that don't agree with the government's agenda, is that separation of church and state? That's the government saying directly to religious organizations, think the right things, or at least say the right things, or we cut you off from support. Now, we could say from the church's point of view, we shouldn't be going after government support anyway. I agree with that. Because if you accept it, then you're tying yourself into doing what they tell you. Right? Jesus got crucified because he challenged directly the authorities in areas they didn't want to be challenged in. The Jewish authorities because of, if he was the Messiah, they had to recognize that he was the fulfillment of all the promises that had made to Israel for 1,500 years. And they would have had to give up their authority religious authority to tell the people how to live their lives, and political authority about making the rules about how their society was supposed to run. And for Pilate, if we go on in that account, Pilate was convinced later in their discussion where the, authority, the, the Jewish authority said, you can't let this guy loose. He is an enemy of Caesar. That's what convinced Pilate to say, crucify him. You take him and you crucify him. What did the early Christian martyrs die for? Same reason. Now, they weren't claiming to be the king, but they were claiming there was another king. And what they meant is a king that's going to change the whole thing. Not just a king who comes along and says, you know what, you need to clean up your life. Because Christians, guys, we don't run around doing violent stuff, at least we're not supposed to, right? That's not the method that Jesus said, if you live by the sword, what? You'll die by the sword. 
You want to do it the violent way? People have tried it in the name of Christ, and they've made absolute horrendous messes of it. That's where the Crusades come and all that kind of stuff. And you say, well, it's all done in the name of Christ. certainly wasn't done in any reflection, of true reflection of who Jesus was and what he said. He never said that. He told Peter, put away your sword. If you choose to go that way, you'll die that way. And that isn't my way. But for the first about 300 years of its existence, the church was right out of politics, not involved in it, but they were perceived within a short time of being, I'm talking about the early disciples and the early Christians, a direct threat. All the documentation that we have going back into the earliest church shows this. They were put to death because when it came down to it, and they had to choose between Caesar and Christ, because there was no compromise here, the emperors of Rome claimed divine rulership. In other words, they said, either I am a god, whether we're alive, or they said, I rule directly under the gods as their anointed agent. And you're going to do homage to me in that way. You were taken, if you were identified as a Christian, before the local authorities, the magistrates or the Roman governor or something like that, and you were given, they would set up a little statue. And we have documented proof of this, okay? This is not imaginary. This is totally real. There are eyewitness accounts of this happening repeatedly. Set up a little statue of the emperor or the emperor's genius, meaning his divine spirit, okay? And they would say, here's a cup of wine. Just pour a few drops of wine at the base of the statue in recognition that you rule, that, that the emperor is the ruler, he's Lord, Caesar is Lord, meaning divine authority. Now, if you were a Christian, at that point, you knew you were facing life or death for the sake of a few drops of wine. Or they might say, they might set up in front of the little statue a little um, bronze, what would you call that? a little bronze dish with some coals in it, some burning coals, okay? And they would hand you this little cup with a little spoon and say, just take a little bit of incense and put it on the coal so you burn some incense in front of the statue. In other words, recognition of your total, complete homage to Caesar here. Deny Christ, they would tell you that. You've been identified as a Christian. You have a choice to make. Is Caesar Lord or is Christ Lord? Is Caesar the king or is Christ the king? Not every Christian chose to say, I won't do it, right? Just like there are, you know, people have moments of weakness, right? Now, this wasn't a simple death, it was, unless you were a Roman citizen. It was, this wasn't a choice of, gee, I'll have a nice, clean, quick death. Hmm? Roman citizens got this wonderful privilege of having their head cut off done. That was the prerogative of being a Roman citizen. Paul had that done to him later in his life when he was martyred. His head was cut off because he was a Roman citizen and he had the right to claim a nice, clean, quick death. In fact, it was against Roman law to crucify a Roman citizen. You're a Roman citizen. You could not be deprived of your citizenship. That was Roman law. Once a citizen, always a citizen. Okay? So you're given choice of a queen, quick death. Okay? But... Peter, according to church tradition, died crucified upside down. When he was presented with that choice, they said, and of course he didn't deny Christ, they said, all right, you're going to be crucified. He says, oh, if I'm going to be crucified, I'm not worthy to be crucified the same way my Lord died. Put me upside down. Usually they did a whole bunch of awful things to you before they did it, too, like Jesus, right? Jesus was not just put on a cross crucified. He had all those other things done to him. That was standard Roman practice, okay? So for the first two or three hundred years, I'm going to wrap this up. The church just basically stood by that and paid the penalty for it. Where does this leave us today? 
Well, we're, we too are called to take our stand on the kingship of Jesus. Right? Our society is really not that much different from that society. That society, everything was, everything was good, everything was cool, you could do whatever you want in the privacy of your own life until you got to that point of publicly declaring where you stood on these things. Just this one simple thing. Do you accept the system and all the demands it makes on you? Or are you going to live under another system? Are you going to have Caesar as Lord or Christ as Lord? A Christian who wanted to compromise in those days could kind of do that. I mean, you know, you could say, like, who's really watching anyway? Drop a little incense there, right? A little puff of smoke goes up and away you go, right? Who's going to be any the wiser? It's kind of between you and God, right? Sometimes we're faced with those choices, I think. Okay, we have the same things. All kinds of decisions that we, all kinds of things that we face that sometimes bring us, but the point is that bring us into those, the, that kind of point of decision. Here's a sobering thought. Did Jesus say anything about this? at all. And I'm not saying where this decision point is for you. I don't know. You know that. Or you may, or you will know it at some point, right? You will know it. And it won't be maybe just one thing. It may be a number of things. But Jesus said this. If you deny me, then I will say, cool, man. That's great. No problem. Is that what he said? If you deny me before people, men, sorry, that's a generic men, ladies, people, then what? I will deny you. Whoa, those are harsh words, man. In our society, that is harsh. That is harsh. I will deny you before my father. Wow. Last point. Again, I don't want to leave this on a downer, guys. I'm just saying this is the challenge we're in. We're in a society where this is being done all the time, but it's very subtle. It's very, you know, accept everything. It's all cool. Right? Anything goes. Any God you want to worship, it all leads to the same place. Huh? Really? If I worship Allah the way Muslims worship Allah, excuse me if any Muslims are, it doesn't seem sometimes to really lead to the same place. Okay? Sorry if I'm picking on one group, but I mean, you pick your own group. In, the, in the Matthew chapter 25, Jesus talks about the sheep and the goats. A bunch of people are standing there and they say, Lord, Lord, look at all the stuff I did for you. I mean, you know, I did all these amazing miracles. I prophesied and did all these, said all these amazing things. And Jesus said, super cool. No. He said to some, he said to the people that he calls the goats, sorry, you don't have any part in me. I never knew you. And then the people on the other side, he says to them, you did all those things, right? But when you were doing them, you were doing them to me. And the whole thing is the lordship, the kingship. Who's the king of your heart? Who's the king of your life? So, I'm just going to pray because I, 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 this is a bit of a heavy message. This is, this is one of those hard sayings, you know. Jesus has some of these really hard sayings. I find them really hard. I, I find myself totally sometimes, totally missing it. It's like, oh God, I just compromised big time there. I knew I should have said something, I didn't. 
I knew I should have acted differently and, or I shouldn't have ignored this thing and I just walked away, but, it, you know. It's not that you have to be somebody that's confronting and affronting and offending people all the time. It doesn't, that's not what we're talking about here. You'll know the moments because the Holy Spirit will, he'll be there. Where you know there's something that you need to say. Where you know that there's something maybe you should do. You might not even be words. Okay? Here's something totally weird. I'm sorry, I didn't intend to put this in, but, and I know I'm a bit over here. Um, but, um, one time I came out of this really powerful Christian meeting, and, uh, you know, you come out of that and you're all pumped up and stuff, right? And, and it was all about, you know, when you get out there, you've got to put, the, put it into practice, right? And, of course, you're coming out there and thinking, yeah, yeah, you know, I, I, I get that and I'll do that. And then something, I'm walking out of there, and I get to my car in the parking lot, and totally out of the blue, the Holy Spirit said to me, stop. I'm, I'm actually sitting in the seat of my car, about to turn the engine on, and the Holy Spirit says to me, stop right there. I'm kind of like, uh, I'm, I'm on this like high here, okay? And I'm saying, what? And he, and he says, see that guy in the uh, parking attendance box over there? He needs prayer. Get out of the car and go and pray for him. And he's a total stranger. I've never met this guy before in my life. And I'm thinking, what? Seriously? And I'm thinking, oh, this is just my imagination, right? <sighs> so I turn the car on. I'm thinking, this, is, this, this can't be. Yeah. And um, nope. Immediately, turn the car off. Stop. And this is like, this is no longer a request. Right? This is like, I'm riveted there and thinking, and I'm, I'm, I'm thinking terrified, you know, like, I don't, God, I don't do this kind of thing. You know, like, this is not something I do. Maybe, you know, years ago when I was street witnessing or something, but not now. Like, I'm kind of older and wiser, right? So, and he says, no. I said, yeah, but I'll look like an idiot, you know, etc. You know, you argue with this stuff. And I'm just kind of thinking, you're not going to let me go. All right, you know. So I get out of the car, and I thought, I'm going to sound crazy to this person. This is going to sound crazy, Okay. So I walk up to the attendant, and the first thing I see is, I mean, the guy was Middle Eastern, and I think, Lord, you can't be serious, because, like, he's probably a Muslim, and believe me, I have nothing against Muslims, nothing, okay? But I'm thinking, like, Muslims don't accept prayer from Christians, I'm okay with, but I'm thinking to myself, this guy is going to just be angry. And, and Anyway, I thought, okay. So I, I went up to him and I said, and I said this. I said, this is going to sound really crazy. But God just told me I should be praying for you. And he, of course, he just looked at me like I was a whack job, right? It's just like, and he said, what? I said, like I said, I think God just told me I'm supposed to be, I'm supposed to pray for you. And he says, oh, that's nice. And I said, no, 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 you don't understand, like right now, here. And he just said, oh, um, okay. What do I pray? Well, what I prayed was probably something that anybody would pray I just prayed for God's blessing on him, on his family, and to meet his needs and stuff like that, you know, and to show him himself. I mean, he can interpret God showing himself to him in whatever way he wants, right? But of course, I know how I'm thinking of that. And then I thought, if I say the usual thing at the end of a prayer that I say, maybe it'll offend him, but I did anyway, in Jesus' name, Right? He just 
Like, by the time I finished praying for him, his, his face was totally alight. He had this beautiful, peaceful smile, and I thought, wow, this turned out, like, so different than what I thought. I'm not, I'm not bragging, guys. I'm just saying that when we do something like this, acknowledge who the king is. I mean, you may not get that result. <laughs> and whether I did or not was I obeyed. I did what he told me right, like, right out of the box as far as I was concerned, like absolutely, totally out of the box. And I don't know how much he got blessed. I, th- I think he got blessed from what I could see. But I know how much I got blessed. It's just like I went back to my car and I sat down and I just thought, wow, God. I think I got blessed out of my socks even more than that meeting that I just spent three hours in. You know, it was just like, wow, this was far better, far greater. Okay. Like I say, I'm going to close in prayer. And um, it's all about, like Jake said before, God's kingdom here and now. God's kingdom here and now. And how that plays out, where you are and what you're doing, God will show you. Father in heaven, we do thank you for who you are. Jesus, we thank you for being our king and our Lord. There's no limit on that. It's a challenge to us in our personal lives. It's a challenge to our society. But as we obey and as we do what you tell us and as we live the way that you've asked us to live and shown us, your kingdom is proclaimed. Your prayer says, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Not pie in the sky by and by, but now in our lives, where we are, for however long that you've given us. May it be so. Go in peace.